All of my friends from high school know me as the bodybuilder. All of my friends from college know me as Blendy, pretty much. Some people in college don't even know my name. They just call me either the Blender Kid or Blendy. Some people even in Boston now who loosely know me are just like, oh, Blendy, Blender Kid, it's, it's like crazy. But switching from high school and bodybuilding to college and entrepreneurship slash Blendy was just easy, right? But then I can't even tell you what it's like to not have something in my professional life, I guess, because not, not one of my friends knows me as a financial advisor. In fact, quite honestly, I keep it fairly secret. If you looked at my social media, there might be one post, but everything else is blendy, right? So my entire identity is blendy and um, it would be difficult, but at the same time, they're still myself. It's not like people are friends with me because I'm a like entrepreneur. They might know me as blendy and that's okay. If it ever got stopped, it is what it is. But if you're tied to your own identity being your company, you should probably take a step back or just reevaluate, I suppose. Hey, I'm Jonathan Katz. I'm the founder of Blendy, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Salm, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports, health, and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week, I'm excited to have Jonathan Katz on the podcast, who is the founder of Blendy. He's also a financial advisor. He's a former bodybuilder, but still a health enthusiast. And he's also a former rugby athlete at Springfield College. So I'm excited to have Jonathan on to tell us about his entrepreneurial journey, about taking an idea that he had in college and turning it into a a real-life product that's soon to be on the Home Shopping Network, I believe, right? Yes, that's correct. Sweet. So Jonathan, just to start off, like when you were growing up, like what area did you feel like you proved your worth to the world? So, well, thanks for the good intro, Kevin. I appreciate that. Um, how, how I felt like I, I actually started giving my worth to the world is probably actually starting Blendy. I started my entrepreneurial journey, I guess, when I was a teenager doing eBay sales, but I never really did anything for society, I suppose, and gave anything back. But I felt like Blendy is, it's a health product. You know, it's, it's, I have it right here. It's a handheld portable blender. And we've helped a lot of people not only be able to hit their nutritional goals, but also just allow them to have healthy meals. They don't have to sacrifice for, you know, McDonald's or something like that. So when, so I guess at, at this point, I guess like tell us about, you know, you were a bodybuilder. So I think this is kind of how it, you know, when we talked previously, this is kind of where the idea was generated from. So take us from what was the problem to, you know, let me execute. Because a lot of people have ideas and experience problems on a daily basis, but they don't ever execute on actually making something, a solution for that problem. Yeah. So as you probably know, the shaker bottles out there, right? You have to shake up your protein or whatever you have. And I was going to the gym every day and shaking up the shaker bottle and just having a clumpy mess pretty much. Um, It wasn't drinkable. It was basically like eating my protein. And so I said, why can't I replicate my home blending experience, but any convenience for my water bottle? And so I went back to my dorm. I went on Microsoft Paint. I started drawing something up. And then I guess I had the wherewithal to seek an engineer out. And so I went on this site called Upwork.com. I said, hey, this is my idea. This is kind of some artwork I developed. Would you mind um, you know, if I pay you to basically draw a 3D drawing of it? And so they went to CAD and that's kind of how it started. But basically, the pain was just having a shaker bottle, and having a clumpy protein shake every workout. It was that simple. But I guess, like, what was the difference in your head? Like, have you always been that, like, a hustler and trying to make things happen? Because I'm sure you, along with millions of other bodybuilders out there at the gyms, were experiencing the same exact problem. I guess, like, why this problem? Did you feel like this is something that I want to go after? Yeah, I, I I had never been a I had never been like this. Um, I would say selling on eBay really is not entrepreneurial. I just kind of like hustling, I suppose. So I was never truly entrepreneurial. This is my first start. But before this, I didn't really I wasn't you know doing anything, and I didn't even know the you know what I had to do to accomplish this. But um, 
I guess just what did it was just because I, I saw the need. And then I looked up and I researched if there's anything out there like it. And the only thing that came closest was, you know, this thing was this uh, bottle basically that had plastic stirrers. And so I had bought that actually after I had the idea. And I said, well, there's still, I mean, it could mix up my protein. Yes. But at the same time, I want to replicate my home blending experience. So what does that mean? That means stainless steel blades. And that means the ability to not only do protein, but also do something like fruits and vegetables or something, something, you know, more, I guess, voluminous, right? And so sometimes with mass gainers, like those really thick powders, even that one that had the plastic oscillating stirrers was not really good enough. It was pretty weak and um, it just didn't have the, uh, the power to do anything. So what ultimately got you into to bodybuilding? Like, were you an athlete growing up and... Yeah, so I, I played high school football. I was always uh, overweight, I guess. I was like 195 pounds at uh, like five six, <laughs> five six five seven. And so for middle school and early high school, that was okay. And I played line, and um, that's what really got me into football. And then I said um, after kind of Snapchat came about and people started using like texting and stuff like that a little bit more, I saw how I actually looked. And personally, I just didn't like how I appeared on camera and in the pictures. And so I said, I kind of want to make a change. And when I did that, I obviously had to search out some type of knowledge in terms of how do you even lose weight. And what I did was I basically just calorie restricted. And I lost um, during football workouts, I went from 195 to 150 in like four months. It was kind of crazy. And um, I had cut down so much. I got abs and stuff like that. I was doing at home workouts. And for the first time in my life, I was, I thought I was pretty healthy and I was working out, eating well, my diet improved, everything kind of just improved. And then slowly but surely, as I got more into the workout scene, like on YouTube, which is basically my the way I was working out, I then discovered bodybuilding. I said, Hey, I kind of, it was mainly Scott Herman, actually, if you know what Scott Herman fitness is on YouTube, but he was kind of a, an early YouTuber. And so I saw that I said, I like that physique. And you know, I kind of want to, I want to try and get that. So then the next move was taking it from at home workouts to the gym. And that's pretty much the, um, how I got into, it. I had quit football after that. I went to work and basically bodybuild. And it was quickly after I got into the gym, maybe seven months that I actually got a bodybuilding coach. What made you quit football? Because I was five, six, five, seven, and like 150 pounds. You can't do much, especially in high school. And um, when you play line your whole life, it's not like you're just going to convert to a running back your junior year of high school. That's just not how it goes. You know what I mean? It would be very difficult. Yeah, I hear you. But what's interesting is that, do you think that bodybuilding gave you the confidence to uh, quit football? Because there's a lot of social aspects like to playing a sport and especially in high school football in particular. And to be able to confidently step away from the sport do you feel like you were able to do that because you had this other thing going on that you were enjoying the pursuit of yeah so you hit on a good aspect which is the social aspect the social aspect for football is basically friends and that's that's a big reason to why i did it i'm also a huge college football fan and so with that being said i always wanted to play but um once i discovered bodybuilding i got in shape it pretty much like you said, gave me the confidence I needed to, to not only quit, but I saw that my time and my use, basically my utility on the football team was basically, well, my use was not, not great, but my time was also more valuable as I was like starting to work at 16, 17 years old and making money and, and uh, really pursuing health and bodybuilding. And with that being said, football was kind of this thing where everybody else in my grade was doing well or you know, my friends are doing well, or or they just didn't care to not start or whatever. But I really wanted to start, I really wanted to be good at it. And once once I had so much weight loss, basically, and had to switch to like linebacker, I think I was playing at the time, people had been playing linebacker since, you know, A's football in like grade eight, or grade seven. So I was completely outmatched. And it was just kind of, I guess, time to, to hang up those cleats, at least for high school. But the bodybuilding definitely did give me confidence to do that. Okay. Yeah. It's its, its own sport, to be honest. Oh, I, I'm, I'm well aware. Yeah. It's the time commitment and the discipline that you need to be able to compete. Yeah. I completely agree. Where did you work after you quit football? 
I just was working at a grocery store in a bakery, actually. <laughs> the bakery? So, yeah, so the bakery is very challenging to keep the weight off because there was always good stuff around. Yeah, talk about discipline as a bodybuilder. I mean, geez, you couldn't pick a more like tempting job. Yeah, because in, in front of you is just cookies and like cakes and bread. But yeah, it was interesting. I actually learned how to bake, which was kind of cool. Really cool. Yeah. So, all right, now we're, we quit football. We, we got a job. We're working in, in bodybuilding or we're working on becoming a bodybuilder, really getting into this health and fitness world. So you go to Springfield College. What was your initial kind of you know, idea or vision going into uh, college at Springfield? I'm just kind of you know, painting the picture before Blendy becomes Blendy. You know? So we started or I started um, kind of getting more into health. I said to myself, all right, well, I could be a personal trainer, but in reality, do I need to get a college degree for that? No. In reality, how much do they make? And uh, just, I guess it wasn't enough for me. And then I got into athletic training just for a little bit. So I went to athletic training camp at Springfield College. That was a big reason why I went to Springfield, which is because of that camp and getting to see the campus. And then I decided, well, athletic trainers really don't make that much money either. So what can I do that's good? And I kind of settled on physical therapy. So then once I had that in mind, I was like, well, Springfield is basically known for that. And um, that's where I wanted to be. And so I applied and I think I was too late in deciding for uh, physical therapy. So I was on the track to become into the physical therapy program after year one. But then by the time that year one, end of year one came around was, was basically the time that I had developed Blendy. Oh, so it was right off the it bat. Was, yeah, right off the bat. It was kind of okay. nuts. Yeah. Another big reason why Springfield is so attractive is that not only was their gym awesome, but the culture of bodybuilding and fitness there is, I think, honestly, like none other. I mean, that entire campus is just fit and it's so health you know, focused. Yeah. I mean, I grew up on the East Coast, so I know of Springfield College and I know it's known for like phys ed and yeah, kinesiology, athletic training, physical therapy, like that's the hub. So you would think that people who are interested in those things all kind of gravitate towards, you know, that school. So it's it's cool that about thing like a uh, product like Blendy came out of or was born from, you know, a place that was very health conscious. Yeah, so we talked about kind of how you went from the problem and, you know, asked about the to have a CAD drawing done and everything like that. But I really would love this episode to kind of almost be a roadmap for an athlete who's listening to this, who might be recognizing some problems that may, they might want to solve to see what kind of process you went to, went through. And, you know, we talked about the design and, and prototypes, like how many prototypes have you gone through to get to the point where you're at now, like the bottle that you just held up? Yeah. So in an abbreviated, um, you know, short story, short version, Basically, what happened was after I came up with that idea, I said, okay, well, I'm not going to be a physical therapist anymore. So I transitioned into business. So April of 2016 was the idea for Blundy. That's when it initially started. And then, you know, the next year was my sophomore year. And so it kind of just was in CAD drawings. And during that summer, I was reading business books. I was reading anything I could really like self-development was probably the, the largest one I was reading. And the book that really changed, I guess, my life was Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I thought that was probably the best book I had read in terms of just overall mindset. It's kind of just the fact that, you know, what you can believe, um, you basically can conceive and achieve. So it's whatever you put your mind to, you can do pretty much. And I really took that to heart. And I said, all right, let's like, you know, try and get this done. And then in my sophomore year in the fall, I think I had reached out to a faculty member at Springfield and they were in charge of basically working with the Valley Venture Mentor Group, which is an entrepreneurial group in the area. And they said, oh, there's this other program called Three Day Startup and you basically pitch your idea and you know, hopefully they choose you. So I did that. I already had the CAD drawing, so I was way ahead of everybody. There was like 40 kids there. Everybody pitched their idea. Only five got chosen. I was the one of the five. And um, everybody, other, all the five people who got chosen had teams of four or five people because the rest of the people have to join those five people on a team. Only one person joined my team. <laughs> so um, it was one engineer kid and everybody else had like five kids on their team. It was kind of funny. And then they basically set you out on this journey. And this is kind of the most important part because it's, it's basically what solidified that this is real. 
And so they, they, they first put you at some local place. We did the mall and they say, you need to basically pitch your product to people and ask questions. So we, we asked me and this kid, um, we asked about a hundred people about the idea. We had all the CAD drawings, which was helpful. And then the second piece is, okay, now you need to design a prototype for it. If you can, like, a, you know, if it can work great, if it can't, then that's okay. And so I didn't do any work. He, he did most of the work as he was an engineer. And in one night we had to went to Walmart, I think at 11 PM, we got a $15 Walmart blender and a drill. And so he took the $15 Walmart blender. He cut the cord on it. So I like to say we cut the cord on traditional blending. That's like our tagline now. And then he gutted it, left the motor. And then he took the drill battery, attached it to the side of the blender with the trigger. And so then he, then he attached those wires to the motor of it. And so when you're pulling the trigger on the side, it was basically shooting the power up to the motor to then spin the blades. And it was, you know, completely rechargeable. So it was proof of concept that it could work. And uh, everybody was pretty much amazed. When you brought it back to... Yeah, and you like, you show it off to everybody. And uh, you know, everybody's like, wow, like this is crazy. And then basically we had so much interest after that. We were, we were invited to do the mentorship program at Valley Venture Mentors, which is, uh, like I said, entrepreneurship, basically growth accelerator program. What was going through your head when like only one that one engineer decided that he wanted to work with you and like, what were your friends and stuff like saying at the time or like, is, you know, John's going off the deep end or what? Like, so not many people knew about it. And secondly, three day startup didn't even happen at Springfield college. Springfield college is the most non-entrepreneurial non-business school ever. So nothing happened there. It was all at Western new England university. So I didn't know anybody. And I think partly the reason why is because I didn't know anybody. Two, they thought I was already, you know, farther than anybody. Or three, I'm just completely unapproachable, <laughs> which may be it too. I'm not sure. The muscles. That's right. Yeah, I was kind of big back then, to be honest. I was probably at the height of it. So yeah, that's probably the reason why. So then after that, that was just the first piece. Then we did the mentorship program. And then after that, we did the accelerator program. And then during the accelerator program is the next big piece of the puzzle. We got in touch with UMass, so University of Massachusetts, and we, we were using uh, their senior capstone project as a way to get the second prototype. And so we had so much interest this time that we had 11 different engineers working on it. So two different teams of engineers. So everybody else had one team. We had two this time. So it's kind of, I guess, a gift for the, the only one kid who joined last time. But uh, it was really good. It, we only paid $750 for the prototyping which is a godsend because if anybody knows this, it's usually like 10, 10 to 20,000 for 3D prototyping. So we only paid $750 and we had two different prototypes made. One took a basically a blender bottle, or I guess a shaker bottle, I should say. They cut out the bottom. Then they, then they 3D printed a, a bottom base that had all of the you know, good stuff in it, the motor, everything like that. And then once you screwed it up into the blender bottle base, you basically hit the button and blades were spinning. So they, they made that base and then cut out the bottom of the shaker bottle, screwed it up there. And so it's basically, basically what I wanted it to look like the entire time. And it was, you just flip open the top like a regular shaker bottle, you drink from it, but it has blades in it. And so that was awesome. And then the other team didn't do the best. They basically just made, you know, like a ninja or like a magic bullet cordless pretty much. And so that's a little, that's, it was too bulky. Yeah, so that's interesting. And you mentioned, because I'm just thinking like, you're in college. And I always tell people who are in college, like, you don't understand how many resources you have like at your fingertips. And like, to use that student card like to the max, like you paid 750 bucks for that prototype. Yeah, when in reality, most people would pay 20 grand for it. So you said that you reached out to UMass, but like, what does that mean? Well, they reached out to us. So that's, that's why the accelerator program was so good. How'd you find the accelerator program again? That was Valley Venture Mentors. So after three day startup, we went that they, they found us again. They said, Oh, you should do the Valley Venture Mentors program. So first I did the mentorship, I got a mentor. And then they're like, Oh, you should then do the accelerator. And then the accelerator is like the big boy, like leagues, pretty much. And so I did that. And that's how they're like, Oh, you should use this senior capstone project we have at UMass. And so they basically invited me to do it. So basically kids in that program were using your product as their capstone project. Yes, correct. Gotcha. Yeah. 
I mean, how many schools probably do that or something like that? Yeah, no, it's true. UMass, I kind of wish I went there at, at the end of the day because that was a great school. But that that team that built that really good product, that prototype was uh, ended up winning the best entrepreneurial award at that awards. So, but I think you know, to your credit, and for people listening to this, like, say you don't have the resources necessarily at your school, like you figured out a way to insert yourself at other schools, even though you're paying tuition somewhere else, and they're. Oh. Yeah, Springfield did nothing, <laughs> truth be told. Is that just like your confidence in your product or you like talking with people? Like what kind of skills did you use to get those relationships to give you those opportunities at other places? I was, I, I guess, a little more shy back then than I am now. But still, I was more outgoing than the average person, I suppose. But everything was so new to me. I, I felt like I could learn from any everybody and anybody. So especially at those at those nights during the accelerator program, you're actually just forced to talk to other people's you know people in the program and the people who lead the program. So those people are then connected to other people, right? And they talk and and they try and set you up. The whole the whole goal of that program is to make you a legit business and on your way with funding, hopefully, to the next level. And they're going to do everything that they have in their power to get you those contacts. And that's basically. You know, I didn't seek that guy out myself. He pretty much just said, oh, I heard about you and heard, you know, we might have something to offer you. And so then he just told me what it was. I was like, yeah, sure. At the end of the day, you do have to put yourself out there. If I didn't do that program, we wouldn't even be here right now. So you have to put yourself in a position at least to apply and and, uh, get in. And is that just like a simple Google search to some, like they came to you, but like if say, all right, I went to Rutgers. New Brunswick, New Jersey Entrepreneurship like Accelerator or New Jersey Entre- Entrepreneurship Accelerator. Like, are these things like searchable or they are like invite only? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they they are the the bigger ones will always come to the you know the head of the search, right? But I I have heard of and been suggested to apply to multiple ones that I could never have found. I think one of them is an you know XRC Labs in New York. Another one is Mass Challenge. Like we've all heard of Techstars, we've all heard of Y Combinator, we've all heard of those accelerators. But those are those are the insane. Like you're, you know, you could be like a unicorn status, right? Like stuff like that. Like you know, for software, it's very seldom ever that you see a hardware kind of product, basically like like mine, a physical good product that's in these accelerators because it's just so rare. Usually, it's software or some type of service. Is that because like people think it's hardware everyone's already done it already yeah but but like i said that the cost to start is so high the prototyping fees the the manufacturing fees that i mean the cost of goods everything is so high right like software is like intelligence in your brain putting it into code and making it something where like it's just your time essentially almost yeah pretty pretty much so if, if you're a coder you can do it you know what i mean it depends on your level of skill but at the end of the day, like we, we have all the people in you know the, the countries around the world that work for way less than we do, and people don't don't believe this, but you could probably get an app developed right now for a couple thousand dollars. You could just hire somebody, you know, in a third world country, pretty much, and they could just do it for a couple thousand dollars or develop your website for a couple hundred dollars. It's really not that hard, and to start something like a software business, you have to have some type of technical knowledge to at least guide them to what you want at the end, or just like have a CTO as a co-founder. But once you lead them to it, they can just create it. And it's really not that hard. Yeah. I mean, I'm like super anal with like what my website looks like and what pictures go up and like how things are. And I think people have mentioned that to me, like outsourcing it to other countries. And in my head, I'm just like, I'm like so anal. Like I just feel like they're never going to do what I want them to do and i'm going to be paying them money to give me a product that's like not what i want necessarily yeah you do so my friend ben levitt is a big social media guy and you know he he farms out his own personal branding instagram stuff to somebody out you know it's, i think bangladesh it might be but um it takes in like three three or four different people to kind of see who's actually good because you know you, and then you, you just, stick with those guys yeah and then you girls. stick with those guys yeah, but you know, some of them they do have a bad track record, unfortunately, of just asking for more and more and more money. So you have to almost constantly either recycle or just stick with them and keep paying them higher. But sometimes how it goes. Yeah, we yeah, we threw them. Yeah. yeah. I can see that. Yeah. So all right, well take us through like was it always blendy? Like 
Blendy from the beginning when you first came up with the idea? Like, how did you brand and and market the the product and with the website and the domain name and and all that jazz? Like, there's so much that goes into it. I'm sure. Yeah. So we started off as Steel Blade, and Steel Blade uh, was the sickest logo. I thought I liked it the best. It was blue and and gray. It had like SB Steel Blade, and it had basically like a circle with four blades coming out of it, which I thought was so cool. But uh, it was very aggressive. The colors were aggressive. The logo was aggressive. Everything was just like aggressive and like manly, pretty much. <laughs> Bodybuilder, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. It it's was like, iron. Yeah, that's right. You know all those supplement companies that like have these crazy names like Grenade and stuff like that. Like, you know, it's kind of, it kind of looks like something like that. Uh, like Muscle Farm, like something like that. But um, so then what happened was, it got more serious and um, we, we actually push came to shove and it was you know time to actually start making units. And I, th- I really don't remember exactly when I came up with a new name. I think it was December of 2018 maybe, or I think it was December of 2017 that I decided, okay, we're going to do Blendy. And Blendy was after a lot of different other names, which I forget at this time, but, but Blendy was great. And, um, then we saw there was a Blendy, I guess, out in, it was too late by then. There was a Blendy out in the United Kingdom. So we had to be Blendy Blender. And the way we spelled it was you know, a little bit different as well. And uh, that was the domain we chose. So I figured Blendy Blender you know, conveyed what exactly we were. And it was still available for .com. For some reason, I don't like picking like the .co's, the, the .shop, stuff like that. You know, I like .com. It's like tacky. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with you, man. Or, or they, or you know, at least I know, and maybe other people know this that like it's not legit. Like someone else already has the .com, and you know, you're either too cheap to pay for it, or you just got to hustle or something. I don't know. Not smarted. <laughs> yeah, no, I I feel the same way. All right, you start making product, so you need a lot of money, I'm sure, to to do that. And finding a manufacturer is it? Where is it made? And had you come up with with who is going to produce the product? This story is kind of crazy. So what happened was once we had once we finished the senior capstone project, I went off to LA and I worked under the CEO of a startup company called Genexa. And I did that for three months and I lived like the LA life and I didn't really think about Blendy at all, to be honest. I just lived life like a college kid and enjoyed LA and I learned just a ton how to run a business, you know, and they were a product business, pharmaceuticals. Did you take that job because you wanted to learn what, because you're making your own startup, you want to see what they do? Correct. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Did someone give you that advice to do that? Or how'd you know to like... My aunt had connected me with them, but uh, I think she was just like, well, you have a startup, you should probably learn from them. So maybe it was her. She was just kind of guiding me, but she never said outright, you should do this because of that. But you know, it kind of turned into that. Yeah. So I did that for three months. Then I came back and said, well, I got to find manufacturing somewhere. <laughs> so I basically just searched like blender manufacturers on Google and um, it, they quickly come to like a couple of Chinese, I think I searched China as well because I, I had gotten a quote from a couple of US companies and it was like insane. It was like $75 to produce one, which is so dumb. People are like, oh, how come you don't manufacture in the States? It's like, well, that's why. <laughs> Do you want your uh, blending to be like a <laughs> hundred? No buy it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. Anyways, I we, we found... I think four different manufacturers in China that could do it. And the whole thing was basically the design of it was the was what made it really special and the blades. So the motor can be sourced, the wires can be sourced, you know, all the internal hardware is sourced, but it's basically just the blades and the overall design that has to be unique. And once we found that out, it was just basically you pay for the molding for the plastic and that's like, you know, 10 to $15,000. And then once you're once you have that in place, it's just like you just plug and play. So then you just start the manufacturer does whatever they do. They put their plastic in there and it makes the mold. But then after that was done, we had four different um, manufacturer sense prototypes with different tweaks and such and what they could do. We had to sacrifice some things from the design, unfortunately, but one just got it very right um, to the point where we, we, we liked it. And it was time to kind of, you know, move on with that one. And so I just said, all right, got to commit now. And it was the summer of 2018. I was going into my senior year. So now we're, you know, I'm still, I guess, technically a junior going to my, my senior year. And I had um, 
probably like a couple thousand dollars worth, maybe $7,000 in my bank account. And I basically just said, I just cashed it all into 300 units of Blendies pretty much. And so I just went all in money, like pushed all my poker chips to the center of the table. And uh, I paid off college too. And when I paid off college with that money, as well as paying off Blendies, I was in a negative, I was down, I was down like $1,500. So what I had to do to finance the Blendies to find like, Okay, so let me let me backtrack. So I put thirty percent down for three hundred blendies. That was a couple thousand. Then I also put down the rest of my tuition payment I paid myself. But then in manufacturing, you have to put down the seventy percent, the rest of the PO, when it's ready to ship. So the rest of the seventy percent I could finance up until I think about fifteen hundred dollars worth I didn't have, and uh, I wanted to get it done now. So what I had to do, which was the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> I took my credit card. I took out a cash advance. And if anybody knows what a cash advance is, it's you get charged interest ASAP. I thought you had a month to pay it off, but no, you get charged interest ASAP. So I got, I got charged an extra 25% on top of the 1500. So I had to make that up pretty quickly. And uh, what I did was I just pre-sold a bunch of blendies after that. I said, all right, I got to hustle now. So yeah, what was it like getting that that first sale, and like how was how did you approach trying to sell those three hundred units? My first sale was I was at the Rockwall at Springfield College where I worked at the time. So I was doing I was doing four jobs in college. I was still working for Genexa, sending emails, and that was paying me twenty five an hour. And I was working I think at that time like twenty hours a, on the weekend. I had no social life at all. Twenty hours on a weekend. Then I was working the Rockwell like three, four days a week. And then I was also an RA. And then I also did um, other like freelance stuff plus Blendy. So then I started selling Blendy. And um, the first time I'd sold Blendy was at the Rockwell. One of my friends came. And by then, everybody had known what Blendy was pretty much. And they're like, um, so when, you know, when's it coming? And he's like, well, let me be the first one to buy it. And so we set up an Indiegogo page that night, which Indiegogo, if you don't know what this is, it's basically like Kickstarter, but they don't have any minimum. So if you don't hit your goal on Indiegogo, you still get the money. If you don't hit your goal on Kickstarter, you don't get the money. <laughs> so um, it's important to really sell on Kickstarter. But Indiegogo is good because I could just run it like as if it was my website. So I, I sold the first one to him and then I had... Then the next one, I, I forget, but that first one was, was that one. And I think we had sold maybe 20 units just by me like talking to people. And we had raised, I think, almost like $1,000 or something like that. It was enough to, to cover the, the bills. Yeah, really cool. I'm sure that, that felt, felt pretty good. And you're, you're still juggling jobs, right? So you're also a financial advisor? Yes. So you got yeah. Blendy, financial advising. Um, so... I guess like where did the financial advising come into play? Like how did you have time to even like become a financial advisor with all this going on? Out of nowhere, to be honest. So my, my senior year of college, I was on the business department board. I was the first student elected and I had met a financial advisor who was on that board as well. And he said, oh, like um, I, I had been investing in stocks since I was 17. And so I was kind of into it, I guess. And he said, oh yeah, like, you know, that's obviously my job. I said, well, can I like learn from you? He said, yeah, we, we do internships. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I did an internship. That was my fourth job. That's what it was. So I was my senior, I was working that fourth job basically with everything else, which is crazy. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the way that, you know, he could manage money and, you know, the impact he had in people's lives and just the overall lifestyle of it. And so I said to myself after I got out of college, you know, eventually, as soon as possible, I want to become a financial advisor and run Blendy. And I said to myself, in my 20s, I can probably do that. I might sacrifice some nights of sleep, but I can probably do that. And thus far, I've done it, I feel like, pretty well. Yet last year, I got uh, licensed in financial advising. So I got all my, my licenses. It was three different tests. And then I took an additional one in December. So I took four tests in one year during COVID, which is insane. And uh, also, Blendy grew 100% basically that year as well. And we had 60 retail stores sign up. And, and now this year, it was looking on pace to be better. But unfortunately, we had to deal with uh, HSN and like everything is delayed right now in terms of units. But this would have been our best year. And it still might be actually. But now we're up to, I think, 90 retail stores. 
and um, we're we're averaging like hundred and fifty thousand dollars in revenue, which is pretty good. And for financial advising, uh, I'm doing fairly well. That's great, man, and I respect the hustle uh, for sure. So, when you were getting Blendy off the ground, where did those like investments come from? Myself. That's it. From working and just yeah, that's it. Literally, I never took any outside money. I just hustled. I would sell Xboxes. I'd buy Xboxes on Facebook Marketplace and just sell them for up for more. I would sell on eBay. I think I sold forty five thousand dollars one year on eBay, something crazy like that. And it was just all about the resale game. So I just hustled my way to that money. That's impressive, dude. Yeah. So I know that you are a college football fan, specifically Michigan fan. Yeah. I try not to say that just in case there's any uh, other Big Ten people out there. Uh, well, I'm a Big Ten guy, but yeah, I'm one of the worst Big Ten teams at this point, at least. So, I, really, anyone, I don't really care. But uh, the new name, image, likeness rule, and how they kind of lifted those, and that players can now use their name, image, and likeness to make money. How do you think that changes the game for an athlete entrepreneur who wants to be an entrepreneur? I feel like you're going to get a lot of fake entrepreneurs out there who are college athletes who they're, they're going to glamorize it. But off the bat, it's I think it's it's great for the sport, but it also hurts it a little bit as well because it just I feel like the more time the the more abilities to add money to the game, then the, just the worse it gets. Because I feel like I like college football way better than the NFL, just because of the competitiveness and the pride and all of that that these you know college athletes have for their school. And when you're not playing for money then it's more pure, right? So you, you, you respect, like people love Michigan because of Woodson and you know, the Heisman and all of that, right? And they play for the winged helmet. But once you start getting money involved, then it's like, well, well what does Michigan bring to the table in terms of NIL? Am, you know, am I going to have a good you know, platform, right? So people who are being recruited by like Marshall or like Louisiana Tech, and they also have a ver- you know, verbal offer from Michigan, are going to go to Michigan and they're going to go to you know, Ohio State or Florida, they're never going to go to Louisiana Tech or, or Marshall, right? And so I just think that, unfortunately, a lot of those smaller schools, they were already not competitive. They're going to be even less competitive. And we're even seeing this now with these leagues. These leagues are now consolidating with Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC. They're just going to get like four super leagues. And it's just going to be just basically those teams at the top just battling it out every year. I mean, you still have the f- same four teams every year. It seems like Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, and you know Georgia, or name your other four team, right? Oklahoma, maybe. So it's just I don't know. I feel like it's just going to make the better even better. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with that. I think, like my perspective, like I've spent the last six years of my life, like talking sports, health, and safety, and interviewing athletes who have had career-ending injuries and stuff like that. So, yeah, so you when see I the other view side. name image likeness, <laughs> yeah, it's like, all right, well, some guys never get a ch- some guys who are like shoe-ins with the NFL never get to touch that money because they they ended their careers in college, and now I'm like, all right, well, if you hustle, you can make probably just as much money in college as you were would have made in your first year in the NFL or something. I, I don't know. Like to me, it, it's, it has the opportunity to set athletes up for life after sports that they could fund something else that they want to do their side hustle. I guess my question to you based off of your answer is, well, what if someone came to you tomorrow and said, yeah, you got to shut Blendy down. Like the manufacturing plant or, or facility that you use was, I don't know, having like illegal practices or you're infringing on copyright for blendy something like what if they made you do, if they made you stop working completely, what would you do? Well, first my answer to that question was based off my fan perspective. <laughs> so as a diehard fan, I, I feel for the college game and I'm, I'm interested to see what it becomes. But as a business person, I can understand and I am taking, I guess, advantage of these, these new rules. And we're already reaching out to college athletes for them to be blendy athletes. So as a, I'm a hypocrite, I suppose. So anyways, but yeah, so I would definitely say I'm a hypocrite. But at the same time, they do have a great opportunity to be, you know, doing some great things. Now, in terms of if blendy was shut down, it's um, semi-okay. It would probably 
hurt a lot of uh, things emotionally for me in terms of this is basically who I am. So that would be very, very challenging. But Blendy is not not always and never was going to be my end-all, be-all. As someone who started in college, I realized how much life I have left to live. And, and um, you know, my play at the end of the day is to sell it eventually. So it's it would never it was never going to be, you know, that thing that was going to be through my whole life, right? And if somehow, some way, it got shut down tomorrow, then I would just say to myself, well, I'll try and fight it. But if it's, if it's you know, definite, then I would just do financial advising. And I'd probably just run some online e-commerce shop, to be honest, and just drop ship because everybody drop ships. And I feel like now that I know how to build a brand, I would just drop ship till I found a, a great product and then just privately label that product and just sell it and do what I did with Blendy. Cool. So you have a plan and you already have a backup like intuitively with how you are employ yourself and are employed by uh, someone else too. And, and let me be clear that financial advising is not is, is a job, but it's not really. I mean, you, it's, you make your own time. It's like you're running your own business. You don't have to have any money to start financial advising. You are managing other people's money at a, at a percentage fee and you have to build your own book of business. So it's just sales. Everything is sales. If there's one one thing you have to learn, it's basically sales. Because if you're not only selling yourself to your future employer in like job interviews, you're selling yourself to your spouse, you're selling yourself to your friends, basically. Everything is sales and, and how you speak and how you just, you know, convey yourself and what you're even this is basically like sales. People are getting an impression of who I am on here. You know what I mean? So it's important to understand sales and use it as a tactic. I want to get into sales, but before we get too far off the identity piece, because that's a topic that we talk about all the time on the show, whether it be athletes or military that I've had it on in the past. So you mentioned like emotionally, I would struggle if they took Blendy away because that's like my identity. You know, people know me as you know or identify me with with Blendy. So I, I always have this struggle. Like when you're an athlete, if you want to be elite, you have to be all in. And you have to like immerse yourself. That's your thing. And then when the rugs pulled out from under you, well, sorry, but you know you have to find a new identity. Do you feel like the same way? Like, I guess what's interesting is like your football career. You had the bodybuilding. You were like confident in yourself and going into that next thing. I'm going to stop you right there because I think I know where you're going with this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna. What's interesting is that all of my friends from high school know me as the bodybuilder. All of my friends from college know me as Blendy, pretty much. Some people in college don't even know my name. They just call me either the Blender Kid or Blendy. Some people even in Boston now who loosely know me, just like, oh, Blendy, Blender Kid, it's it's like crazy. But switching from high school and bodybuilding to college and entrepreneurship slash Blendy was just easy, right? But then I can't even tell you what it's like to not have something in my professional life, I guess, because not not one of my friends knows me as a financial advisor. In fact, quite honestly, I keep it fairly secret. If you looked at my social media, there might be one post, but everything else is Blendy, right? So my entire identity is Blendy and um, it would be difficult, but at the same time, they're still myself. It's not like people are friends with me because I'm a, like entrepreneur. They might know me as Blendy and that's okay. If it ever got stopped, it is what it is. But if you're tied to your own identity being your company, you should probably take a step back <laughs> or just reevaluate, I suppose. But I can see how that, that might be in terms of athletics. It's, it's, it's similar, but I feel like a lot of people are able to transition out of it. Yeah. I mean, like when I talk to you, it's more about like how you approach your next thing. Because like you're obviously a very intellectual person, very personable, easy to talk to. Like you take that wherever you go. That's not like attached to Blendy. Like Blendy leaves, and then that part of you is gone too. You know, you, you bring it with you, and I think that's what people kind of fail to to do a lot of times in that that next step. So back to the sales part. How did you hone in on your sales skills? So the first thing I did out of college was get a sales job, and I worked for this company called Datadog as an SDR, which is sales development representative. And I did that for seven months. It was by far one of the worst things I had ever done in terms of mental. But um, it allowed me to move to Boston, learn sales, and learn how to 
you know, basically kind of scale my business actually in a way through sales. And um, I just learned how to do cold outreach. I learned how to speak, how to learn, learn how to ask questions and learn how to be unemotional, be unattached from the outcome. Because when you're getting so many no's constantly on the phone, cold calling over email, and then someone else says, yes, you just learn purely. It's a numbers game. And at the end of the day, not everybody's going to like you. At the end of the day, you're not going to sell everybody. But as long as you get into contact with as many people as you can, you're going to do well and you're going to find those few people or those, you know, pretty good amount of people that will like you. And as you develop and hone these skills, you just get better and better. And so that that job really helped me. And it gave me the confidence, which is what we've talked about so far as the theme. It gave me that confidence to do financial advising. Because there's no way that as coming out of college that I could have sold myself as a financial advisor. I just didn't have any knowledge sales-wise. Yeah, no, that's impressive. And I think, like myself included, like people see those sales development roles at the entry-level sales jobs. And they're like, oh, man, that sounds horrible. And what you're saying, like, it is horrible. But- it is, yeah. <laughs> 100, 150 dials and 30 emails a day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. But the main thing is there's a big but there that you gain some incredible skills that you'll never be able to replicate at a other a job where you're not trying to sell. Exactly. Yeah, I recently interviewed Patrick McQuown. He's like the head of entrepreneurship at Towson University. And pretty much like everything that he said of like advice for athletes, you know, post career if they want to become an entrepreneur is do exactly what you did, which is sell something, work in a sales role and slash or work at a startup. So now you're like a, a living example of, you know, validation of what, of what he just said. Working in a startup, I always suggest just because it's so, it's so uh, just, I mean, it's perfect for an athlete because athletes are go-getters and, and in a startup, you have to be a go-getter. They're, they're not going to give you every assignment. And often if you step up to the plate and do things outside of your realm, which you're going to have to do inevitably, you're going to be promoted fast. And in startups, what's really cool is what I see now in the financial world is you can get a ton of shares in a startup company. And then when they go public and you cash out and you're like a VP at that time, you will be a millionaire. I mean, it's it's so it's almost as easy as just latching onto a startup and just taking them to IPO. Hoping you get lucky, but also like yeah, putting the effort into you make have them to get put the effort point. in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you played football in high school, you eventually transitioned to bodybuilding and rugby. So what about those experiences helped you in your entrepreneurship journey? Or have we already kind of covered that? Yeah. So no, not really. I would say this is now mindset. And mindset really comes into play with football. Definitely begins with there. And um, my mindset going to football was, I guess, weak. <laughs> but once you start doing those two-a-days, they, uh, they, you know, they kind of wheel you in and you're, you know, you're, you're kind of nose to the grindstone. And it really goes to show you not only what your body is capable of, but what your mind can do as well. And often your body um, is telling you to stop. But, you know, like David Goggins always says, I feel like your mind can always push you through to the next level and you should stop listening to your body. Secondly, bodybuilding was a good test of perseverance and also willpower because the ability to stay on track on a diet and on a workout plan is extremely, extremely difficult. Doing especially hour- in a bakery. <laughs> yeah, especially in a bakery. <laughs> I was pulling hour-long hit cardio sessions, so high-intensity interval training cardio sessions at the end of an you know intense workout, lift uh, you know lifting weights-wise, and then to do an hour of cardio is insane. While also on a keto diet, which is no carbs, and the mental capacity to to do that was unbelievable. I mean, to be honest, frankly, it's not healthy. But I was just laying around all day; I couldn't even do much. So that tested my willpower. And then rugby didn't really do much for me, to be honest. But uh, but bodybuilding and football were, were definitely the pinnacles of now what has set up to be, I guess, my my success or whatever success you think I can perceive at Blendy. So where can listeners connect with you and, and buy a Blendy if they want one? Yeah. So if you want to connect with me and have any questions, I encourage you to reach out to my social media, my personal Instagram is John Katz 96, which is just J-O-N-K-A-T-Z 96. And if you want to buy a Blendy, it's just simple as BlendyBlender.com. And that's also in my my bio on Instagram, but it's B-L-E-N-D-I Blender.com. 
I'll link all that up as everyone knows how podcasts go. And then who is the toughest person that you know and why? Um, probably my mom, I would say. I don't know many other tough people or know the struggle that, that my mom and us as a family have been through. And so for her to keep going after all these years is actually pretty unbelievable. And so I would, I would say she's the, she's the toughest person. I don't necessarily look up to her. I never looked up to my parents because they don't do what I do. But in terms of toughness, mentally, she's definitely been you know, a good person to, I guess, look up to in, in that aspect. What specifically, though, with, with uh, like, that do you equate toughness with your mom? Emotionally, I would say. The emotional struggle through life um, sometimes is difficult. And all the things that, that she's been through and, and we've been through as a family really, really has been a lot, um, including we, we lost my dad when I was bodybuilding. So during my bodybuilding competition, we had lost my father. So that was very difficult. And another reason why the mental aspect is so important, I thought, after that. So, yeah. Right. I'm sorry to hear that, man. But it sounds like you got some some good support and your mom kind of leading the charge there. So That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much for telling your story and providing the athletes listening to this a, a roadmap on, you know, an approach to, to try to, to take. I'm sure it wouldn't go exactly how, how it went for you, but you have some ideas and some places to, to some starting points at least to, to try out. I'm super impressed with what you've been able to accomplish at such a young age and your hustle and drive is uh, inspiring. And I hope that other athletes out there who are you know eager to hustle on the field in the weight room you know can know that that hustle can also be translated into something else where you can create a company that's gonna have a product on the home shopping network like that's pretty incredible so you should be really yeah, really proud of yourself and um uh thank you for your time yeah most definitely thank you kevin i appreciate it